0: Okay, so the title of tonight's talk is The Second Dart, Recognizing and Understanding Vedana. And I'd like to begin by reading a short Tibetan story to you. Once upon a time there was a princess. One day as she went for a walk, she stopped her big toe at a root that jutted out of the ground. Irritated, the princess shouted, "Ouch!" ran to the prime minister of her father's kingdom and demanded that he issue an edict that throughout the kingdom the ground should be covered with leather so that no one would ever hurt their toe. The prime minister knew that the king was eager to fulfill his daughter's wishes and therefore he would feel obliged to cover the entire kingdom with leather." That would have solved the problem, made the princess happy and spared all subjects of the king from stopping their toes. But it would have been quite problematic in many other ways and not least quite expensive. But the prime minister was a bright man and fortunately he quickly came up with a solution. I have it, he exclaimed, instead of covering the whole kingdom with leather, your highness, why do, not, why do we not have two pieces of leather cut to the shape of your feet and tie them to your feet? Wherever you go, your feet will be protected as they come into contact with the ground and we will not have to go to such great expense and deprive ourselves of the sight of the earth. The princess was delighted with this proposal and agreed That's how shoes came into the world and a lot of (laughs) folly was averted. We know that, don't we? That life can hurt and how we are constantly seeking ways to avoid these minor and major pains. We would love to be able to eliminate everything unpleasant like this princess who was looking for a radical solution And yet, that's easier said than done. The confrontation with unpleasant experiences and the reaction to them is a constant theme on retreat. We try to endure them, gritting our teeth, or we fall into self-pity. Maybe we get angry, or we look for ways to get out of here. You, you know it probably, huh? but it is also a constant theme in our everyday life. If you think of it, so many of our actions are motivated by the desire to optimize our lives so that we experience less unpleasant and more pleasant things. So, should we, as this story might seem to suggest develop a thick skin that will protect us from feeling any sensations? Is that desirable? To develop an elephant skin, to numb ourselves to the point where we don't feel unpleasant experiences anymore, but then what would that mean with regard to pleasant experiences Wouldn't that also imply losing our sensitivity for pleasant experiences? Would that be a desirable, happy mind state where we no longer feel ourselves, where we lose touch with ourselves and with the world? I don't think that this would be a happy state. It's not something that I aspire to. But then what is the alternative? How can we live with the pain, with the challenges that are a part of being a human being? Is there a way of being in touch with life rather than numbing out? Is there a way that we can still feel life and yet suffer less? And what do those shoes actually symbolize? What does this story point to? So this topic has to do with Vedana, with the hedonic tone of our experience. Vedana, not Vedanta and not Advaita, it's just Vedana, yes. Uh, And it's something that I would like to explore with you tonight. Because Vedana is really a key theme with regard to our freedom, it really brings to our attention a very pivotal process that is happening in our mental um, processing and in the creation of suffering. And it is for this reason that Vedana really plays a central role in many of the Dharma teachings. For instance, in the Satipatthana Sutta, Vedana is the second Satipatthana, so the whole second part of the Satipatthana is dedicated just to mindfulness of Vedana. Vedana is also one of the five basic dimensions of our experience that the Buddha described as the five aggregates. Maybe you have heard of them. And it is one of the twelve links in the chain of dependent origination of suffering, And actually, it is a very crucial link in this chain. So, what do we mean by Vedana? Basically, Vedana is a mental experience in any mind moment. It is a felt quality of any experience being either pleasant, unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It is also described as the flavor or taste of any experience. In English, as well as in German, and maybe also Dutch, I don't know, there is no exact translation for Vedana. There is no such word. Sometimes Vedana is translated as feeling, but the problem with this word feeling is that we can mistake it with, for emotion, And emotions are something much more complex than Vedana, so that can be a bit misleading. Um, So I will mostly use the term feeling tone. Vedana is a very basic dimension of our experience, and it's something that we can become aware of in any moment, because every experience falls into these categories of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Examples of experiences with pleasant feeling tone are, you might just check in your body right now, areas that feel soft, warm, relaxed. Uh, It could also be pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, flavors. Unpleasant feeling tones could be bodily pain, obviously, hunger, being criticized, feeling down. And in the third category, in the neither pleasant nor unpleasant category, we find all those experiences that are less intense. So they are more flat, they are not so prominent, we don't really notice them. And actually they make up quite a large proportion of our experience you know all those moments where we are maybe brushing our teeth or you know just doing ordinary things that are not ecstatic but also not really bad they're just neutral yes so it could maybe be the sensations that you have on the back of your hands maybe could be or in your earlobes, could be an area that feels neutral, right? Now, it is said that different feeling tones cannot coexist in the same mind moment at the same time. So, when our mind is aware of one feeling tone, it cannot be aware of another one. But, as we know from our experience there can be a quick change. So so we can be aware of a pain somewhere in the body and in the next moment we are aware of a pleasant thought. So it, it can change pretty quickly. We can also distinguish between bodily Vedana and mental Vedana. Although I have to say Vedana is always a mental experience, We always experience it in a mind, so so a stone doesn't experience Vedana. Um, We can still distinguish between between Vedana that come out of a physical experience, like back pain, that's a bodily Vedana, and like um, feeling disappointed or frustrated, that would be a mental Vedana. And another distinction is a distinction between worldly and unworldly Vedana. This distinction refers to whether Vedana are of a sensual or a spiritual nature. And I'll come back to that later, but for the moment let's just focus on the worldly Vedana, because they are the ones that can become problematic for us. Now, why should we pay attention? To vedana. The first answer is because they often control and drive our behavior. Almost permanently we react to feeling tones, we follow them. They urge us to do something or not to do. And it is crucial that we really become aware of this push and pull of Vedana. The second answer is recognizing feeling tone is a powerful way to deconstruct much of our confusion and reactivity and to go right to the root of many of our habitual reactions. So often we are completely lost in our stories and opinions. So maybe we find ourselves thinking here, They really ought to do something about the temperature or about the food or about, I don't know, you know, we always find something. And we can go on and on like that, even sitting here in the meditation hall. But when we really explore our felt experience, we find that underlying all this activity, basically there is just an experience of pleasant or unpleasant, isn't it? So so many of our obsessions and preoccupations boil down to this very simple dimension, mm, that's nice, pleasant, Ooh, that's unpleasant, disagreeable, or mm, boring, flat, disinteresting. It's just so liberating to clearly recognize these patterns because it can just simplify so much. It brings a simplicity and a clarity to how we look at our experience and to understand the basic forces that are at work. So now I would like to draw on what the Buddha himself said about Vedana in the Sala Sutta, in the Sutta about the dart, which contains many interesting statements about Vedana. And we will go through it paragraph by paragraph. Practitioners, an uninstructed ordinary person feels a pleasant feeling tone, a painful feeling tone, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling tone. An instructed noble person too feels a pleasant feeling tone, a painful feeling tone, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling tone. What is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between an instructed noble person and an uninstructed ordinary person? Suppose the uninstructed ordinary person is being contacted by a painful feeling, tone. She sorrows, grieves and laments. She weeps, beating her breast and becomes distraught. The person feels two feeling tones, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a person with a dart and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the person would feel a feeling tone caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed ordinary person is being contacted by a painful feeling tone, he feels two feeling tones, a bodily one and a mental one. So the Sutta says that both inexperienced ordinary persons as well as instructed noble persons, so wise people with a developed mind, experience all three kinds of feeling tones. Nobody is spared. And that is important to see. It is simply a natural course of things that we experience unpleasant experiences. Even very highly developed people with a very wise mind still experience unpleasant Vedana. It's just part of being a human being. You could also say this is the first noble truth. There is pain, there is stress, there is suffering for all of us. And understanding this can help us to accept unpleasant Vedana better and not to take them so personally. But now the difference between the uninstructed and the instructed person lies in the way they react. The uninstructed person reacts to unpleasant feeling tones in a way that adds to the pain of the first dart. And the second dart consists of her reaction to the unpleasantness. She sorrows, grieves and laments, etc., And this second dart is a mental feeling tone. It is the mind's reaction to the event. Sounds familiar, perhaps? Yeah. We usually struggle when something unpleasant hits us. The knee pain, a sound that drives us crazy, a difficult emotion, whatever. And I find it so interesting and poignant often to see how, through our reactions we often exacerbate unpleasant situations and shoot a second or maybe even a third or a fourth dart at ourselves. We dramatize or we have images of the possible catastrophic consequences or we feel ashamed about what is happening or we believe that this is going to be forever in this way. For instance, for me, you know, just... Since one and a half years, I have problems with my left hand, which make it more difficult to typewrite. And I've seen doctors, and I've seen physiotherapists, and until now, nothing has helped. And it is, um, it is inconvenient. It really slows me down. It's a drag. It's, uh, and sometimes I can really feel my mind going into. Concern. Oh, is this really going to stay like that for the rest of my life? And oh, but I want to write, and this is really an impediment. I I can really see how thinking these thoughts just add to this situation, and they immediately bring a sense of frustration. So it's it's so important to see the thoughts. Okay, I'm just shooting the second arrow. Of course, it's inconvenient, but if I don't add this layer, okay, then it's bearable, yes? In meditation, we have plenty of opportunities to watch these mechanisms and slowly to learn to distinguish which pain is unavoidable and which pain, which suffering do I produce myself through my reaction, through my thoughts, my emotions, my stories. And it is really crucial to see this for ourselves, rather than just understanding it intellectually. Really to understand, oh, that's how I am creating suffering. So let's continue. Being contacted by a painful feeling tone, he harbors aversion towards it. When he harbors aversion towards painful feeling tones, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling tone lies behind this. So, the uninstructed ordinary person reacts to unpleasant experiences with aversion. And this is due to an underlying tendency that is there in our mind to react in this way. And this tendency is a deep-seated habit. It's an automatic reaction. Unpleasant feeling tones trigger aversion. It's just this impulse. It's a very basic impulse to get away from what is unpleasant. And if we can truly see these reactions just as a manifestation of a habit, this can help us not to identify so much with them. When I or any other person reacts with anger, with fear, with hatred, then according to the Buddha, this is simply the manifestation of an unhealthy, unwholesome habit pattern. Just a thoughtless reaction to some unpleasantness. It is not a conscious, well-thought-through reaction. And then it continues. Being contacted by painful feeling tone, she seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed ordinary person does not know of any escape from painful feeling tone other than sensual pleasure. When she seeks delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling tone lies behind this. So the uninstructed person, very often it's us, seeks to escape from unpleasant feeling tones through sensual pleasures, because she knows of no other way. And also this is rooted in a deep-seated habit, this craving for pleasantness. Pleasant feeling tones trigger a craving reaction in the mind. We want to hold on to them. We want to repeat this pleasant kick, this taste, this touch, this view. How often have you in these days sought relief and comfort in pleasant experiences when the experience here became difficult? Have you noticed this? Oh, I need a cup of tea. Oh, I need some sweet, you know. And so often in our life, this is how we try to find comfort when things are difficult. Eating something, drinking a cup of tea, engaging in fantasies or daydreams, uh, having sex, shopping, taking a warm bath, whatever. You know, our culture offers so many possibilities. And why is that? Because we know no other escape from unpleasant experiences. That's quite poignant, I find, this fact that we know of no other way to cope with difficulty. And of course, pleasant experiences can temporarily ease a pain, no doubt. Like, you know, when we are overwhelmed by a difficult emotion, it is certainly wise maybe to go for a walk and have some nice sense impressions. Of course, this can help to restore some inner balance, and it is a skillful thing to do. Yet, pleasant experiences will only give us a symptomatic relief, a short break from our suffering. They cannot uproot the the causes of the suffering, and so they don't ultimately lead to peace. And it's again important that we recognize this causal chain in our experience, this process from unpleasant experience, aversion towards it, and then, okay, let's find a pleasant experience. Let's move on. The person does not understand as it really is, the origin and passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feeling tones. When he does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling tone lies behind this. Here the Buddha gives the fundamental reason for our origin, way of reacting to Vedana, it is because we do not realize the fleeting and impermanent nature of Vedana. The origin and the passing away. Yes, pleasant experiences are nice, but how sustainable are those experiences? Do they really give us what we long for in the depths of our being You know, the delicious food we get here, the delightful touch, the beautiful music in our life. How long do these things last and really give us something? The lunch that we ate today, where did it go? Yes, it has been assimilated by our bodies, but the tastes, the textures, they have completely vanished So, experiences, whether pleasant or unpleasant, may be incredibly intense and wonderful in the moment we experience them, and yet they inevitably go by, they fade away, they dissolve. The same applies to unpleasant experiences, pain, grief, loss. They do not stay the same, they change, they pass by, they dissolve. The conflict I had with someone a few years ago, where did it go? The tiredness I felt yesterday, where is it now? Isn't it interesting to notice the discrepancy between the intensity of an actual experience and the faint memory of it? How differently something is experienced, depending on where whether you are right in the middle of it or whether you look back and remember it days or months or years later. No wonder that in the tradition it is often said that life has a dreamlike nature. In the end, all those experiences are insubstantial, intangible. Pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutral, it all passes vanishes, disappears sooner or later. And the reason, what is the reason for this? The reason that Vedana are so instable and impermanent is because they depend on the coming together of conditions. The Buddha compared the arising of Vedana with the arising of fire when two fire sticks are rubbed against each other. Similarly, Vedana arises whenever there is a sensory contact. Contact here means the coming together of an object, for instance a visual object, the bell, um, with a sense organ, the eyes, and sense consciousness, the eye consciousness. So when these three things come together, there is contact. And in this moment, there is immediately there is a Vedana. So, Vedana arises when there is contact and it disappears when the contact stops. In addition to those basic conditions, we can also find many, many conditions that influence the experience of Vedana. So, there are many circumstances of the present experience our own conditionings, for instance, the interpretations, our current mood, our physical condition. All these factors shape our experience of Vedana in a moment, even if the object remains the same. So, for instance, would you say that this Is pleasant. (laughs) Okay, mixed reactions. But for many people, it's pleasant. And it's maybe even more pleasant if you are waiting desperately for the meditation to end, isn't it? (laughs) But when you are in the midst of a deep samadhi, you finally got it together, then it's just an unwelcome disruption. So it's unpleasant. You see, it's not the bell, it's the whole situation that creates the Vedana. So Vedana is not a characteristic of an object. Vedana is not a characteristic of an object. We forget that. We keep forgetting it. We think, this person is pleasant. <sighs> Have you noticed how your relationship with people can change over the years? You know? It it can completely change. It's not a characteristic of the object. It's the whole constellation and the way we relate to an object. Or our interpretations. If we find there is an unpleasant noise and we think, oh, this highway is really disturbing. And then someone tells us it's actually a waterfall. It completely changes the experience, or the other way around. So it's very, very dynamic, the experience of Vedana. It's not fixed. The Buddha continues to say in this paragraph that we do not understand this impermanent nature of Vedana due to our underlying tendency to delusion with regard to neutral feeling tones. And this is, again, a very interesting point. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedana trigger delusion. That means we tend to ignore them. We don't pay attention to them. Normally, our attention is stimulated by pleasant or unpleasant Vedana. But neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedana, they are just not very intense. And so we just ignore them we find them boring, we start to seek other, more stimulating experiences. So maybe we start, you know, here, because there are less uh, stimuli, Maybe we start to read the ingredients of the shampoo or all the notices hanging around. Our mind is craving for some stimulation. Or we go into some daydreaming and uh, rumination. It's so fascinating that sometimes on retreat we can see our mind going even into unpleasant inner dramas just out of sheer boredom. Have you seen that? How the mind starts to create very sad stories. (laughs) Maybe it's just me, (laughs) but it's interesting to watch, you know. We, we are so used to stimulation that we find it hard to bear the less intense, more neutral experience of a mind that is simply calm, even. Just to give you an example, see if you can identify anything in your experience that feels neither pleasant nor unpleasant right now. Maybe as I said, it's your lobes, maybe it's the back of your hands or some other area. So how much attention have you given to such experiences over these days? How much have you noticed of them, actually? So often we just take them for granted. We ignore them. They just escape our attention. They slip our attention, and yet quite a large part of our experience lies in this middle ground. And exactly this, says the Buddha, is the reason why we do not understand how things are. Because we are not present. When experiences are more attenuated, when they are not so intense, when they are more, you know, soft, then we lose interest. We space out. And this, of course, prevents us from seeing clearly the nature of our experience. Let's continue. If she feels a pleasant feeling tone, she feels it and is fettered by it. If he feels a painful feeling tone, he feels it and is fettered by it. If she feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling tone, she feels it and is fettered by it. This, practitioners, is called an uninstructed ordinary person who is fettered <coughs> by birth aging, and death, who is fettered by sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is fettered by suffering, I say. So, we react to Vedana according to our habitual tendencies, and it is this reaction that fetters us, that gets us entangled. We are fettered by the reaction to Vedana not by Vedana itself. And that is the danger that the Buddha speaks of, this danger that we get caught in our reaction. So just to restate once again, these three reactive patterns we have, unpleasant feeling tones trigger all kinds of aversion and rejection, the desire to get rid of this unpleasantness, Pleasant-feeling tones trigger craving and wanting, the desire to hold on to or to have more of it. And neither pleasant nor unpleasant-feeling tones trigger delusion and ignorance. So let's explore those fetters a little bit further. For instance, with pleasant experiences... So often I hear people say, okay, what's wrong with a nice cappuccino? You know, there is nothing wrong with a nice cappuccino. (laughs) Many of those uh, pleasant experiences are not inherently evil or bad also, really not. But the thing is that we can become dependent on them. That is the craving that comes, the wanting them to always be like that, to stay. So even rather innocuous, pleasant experiences can become a trap. They can make us unfree. Like our attachment to comfort. You know, I was very aware of this attachment to comfort that I know very well from myself a few years ago when actually Patricia and I were teaching together in Finland. And it was in April and it was uh, pretty cold, it was freezing outside. And the first night and half day, uh, the water pump fell out, which meant that we had to walk down to the nearby lake to fetch water for washing, cleaning and flushing the toilets at outside temperatures that were freezing. Yes, Uh, And the lake was mostly covered by ice in April. And walking this short distance with my buckets, I was just so astounded at the heaviness of this small amount of water that we were carrying. And I just had to think of all those millions of people in the world who have to carry water every day, mostly women and girls, just to, you know, do some dishes, to wash their bodies, to wash their clothes, so how rarely do i appreciate the fact that i just have a water tap that i can turn on in any moment where i want to use water it's just there and i don't appreciate it and then you know the water came back and we were really looking forward to take a shower finally but then we realized when we wanted to take the shower that the water was cold. <laughs> so another unpleasant experience that we commented on and joked about. Oh, I want pleasant. But then at the end of the retreat, we found out that quite a large number of those Finnish yogis had gone for a swim in the icy lake every morning before the first sit Stoically, you know, without making a big story out of it. So I must admit, I felt a little bit stupid in this moment when I heard that because these yogi were just so cool about this cold water. It was really not a big deal for them. So we could make probably all an endless list of things that we are used to and that we just take for granted. You know, having access to food, having access to water, to shelter, to medicine, all these things. For many things we only notice when they fall away, how much we depend on them. And then we feel the suffering that comes from the attachment, that feeling of lack, of neediness. The fetters can also manifest as all the effort and energy and Control that we put into the fulfillment of our attachments or aversions because we think we really need this or that. So I see myself rushing through the train station just to get my cup of coffee before I board the train. That's craving at work. Or when I strategize to ensure that I'm at the front of the food line or that I can go for my daily walk or that I get enough sleep. I mean, you can really watch your own mind, right, here on retreat? And it all comes down to, I want more pleasantness and I want less unpleasantness. But life becomes incredibly complicated (laughs) when we're always trying to secure all those pleasant experiences. The bigger our dependency on pleasant experiences and on this immediate satisfaction of those wants and needs the more complication and stress we will experience and the greater our suffering if these pleasant experiences are not available anymore so how about if we could practice not to need so much to become more independent And simple. So I'm not speaking about some grandiose project like, okay, from now on I'm only going to take ice cold uh, showers or only sleep four hours a night or so, that's really not very helpful. But just finding our personal ways of practicing contentment, of just finding contentment with a little bit less than we normally think we need. Because actually, you know, we could really learn to appreciate the pleasant experiences when they are there. And there is a huge difference between really appreciating and enjoying pleasantness and craving. Have you noticed these are two completely different things? It took me quite a long time, I have to say, to make a distinction between this craving energy that was actually not um, capable to actually enjoy because I was so busy with craving. It's only when there is less craving that you can actually enjoy the pleasantness that is there. So very often we don't really enjoy what is pleasant because we are busy craving for the next pleasant thing. Have you noticed that? It's so interesting. We are eating one piece of cake. We think, oh, that's nice. I want to get the next piece. And we don't really enjoy it anymore. It's so fascinating. So let's continue with the second part of the Sutta that deals with the possibility of finding freedom. So now we hear about the instructed noble person. Practitioners, when an instructed noble person is contacted by a painful feeling tone, he does not sorrow, grieve or lament. He does not weep, beating his breast and become distraught. He feels one feeling tone, a bodily one, not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a person with a dart, but they would not strike her immediately afterwards, with a second dart, so that the person would feel a feeling tone caused by one dart only. So too, when the instructed noble person is contacted by a painful feeling tone, she feels one feeling tone, a bodily one, not a mental one. We have a very different way of responding to the unpleasant Vedana here. The instructed noble person does not respond with aversion. She doesn't sorrow, grieve or lament. Rather, she remains calm and accepts the unpleasant without denying it, without quarreling with it. Such a wise person is like someone who has been hit by one dart, but by no second dart. Thus, she experiences only the physical pain, but no mental pain. And because she does not react mentally, she adds no mental suffering to the physical pain. Being contacted by that same painful feeling tone He harbors no aversion towards it. Since he harbors no aversion towards painful feeling tone, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling tone does not lie behind this. Being contacted by painful feeling tone, he does not seek delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the instructed noble person knows of an escape from painful feeling tone other than sensual pleasure. Since he does not seek delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling tone does not lie behind this. So, a wise person does not react that way because she feels no aversion to the unpleasant. And this is because there is no longer this habitual tendency in the mind to react in this way. So here the Buddha refers to an awakened person, a person who is actually defined by this absence of fettering habits. So it's a mind that is free from this compulsive tendency to react to each pleasant or unpleasant uh, feeling tone. And such an instructed, awakened person also seeks no comfort in sensual pleasures because he or she knows another escape from unpleasant feeling tones. And that's interesting. That could make us curious to find out more how another escape. Could look like that does not involve seeking pleasantness. Thus, an awakened person is also free from the habit to desire and cling to pleasant feeling tones. So, the last two paragraphs the person understands as it really is the origin and passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feeling tones. Since she understands these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling tone does not lie behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling tone, he feels it as one who is not fettered by it. If she feels a painful feeling tone, she feels it as one who is not fettered by it. If he feels a neither painful nor unpleasant feeling tone, He feels it as one who is not fettered by it. This, practitioners, is called a noble person who is not fettered by birth, aging, and death, who is not fettered by sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is not fettered from suffering, I say. So... The instructed person is able to remain equanimous because she deeply recognizes that all feeling tones are transient. She realizes the danger of being attached to such feeling tones and she knows there is another escape. And such a person is free from the underlying tendency to delusion. As a result, someone who has realized this profound wisdom is able to feel all kinds of feeling tones without getting entangled in reactivity. This is the direction we can go to learn to feel everything, pleasant, unpleasant or neither, without holding on to or pushing away. The goal and the aspiration is not to numb out and to cut ourselves off from sensations, but to learn to open up to the whole experience with a mind that is wide and spacious and non-reactive. However, now the question might come, okay, sounds good, how do we get there as practitioners? What does it take to move from this automatic habit reaction to this wise spaciousness, freedom, because it's really, it's really deeply ingrained in our system. So the answer in short is that we need to cultivate wisdom, the right view of things that enables us to truly understand the nature of all phenomena so that we don't get caught in them again. Ultimately, it is really the penetrative wisdom that can free the mind, the deep understanding. So in our practice, we want to bring wisdom and mindfulness to our experience of Vedana so that we can recognize it more clearly and learn about it. This entails that we move our attention away from the story and the impulses and more to the felt experience of Vedana. So, for instance, if there is a pleasant smell coming from the kitchen, rather than just being overtaken by this uh, craving and then rushing in the direction of the dining hall, see if you can pause before you run. You know, just pause and take a moment to recognize, oh, pleasant Vedana. Yes. Mm That's what I meant by deconstructing our experience. So we simplify what is happening and we recognize what is happening on the most basic level. And the word just can be helpful here. It's just pleasant. Meaning it's nothing more or less. It's just a pleasant Vedana right now. Or if... You're sitting here and the foot is hurting, or the knee, instead of getting lost in all these dramatic images of you know, going to the emergency room, the hospital, and uh, seeing all the, the tragic consequences of this knee pain, we could just recognize for a moment, okay, unpleasant Vedana, just unpleasant Vedana. What happens when we can fully acknowledge the vedana, right now, without creating this whole story around it? How does that impact our experience? A good question we can ask ourselves over and over again, especially in such moments of reactivity. Is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neither? Just to become more clear. You might notice that often we cannot catch the first moment, you know, of vedana, and maybe we only become aware that something is going on when the reactivity has already set in. But it doesn't matter. We can always ask the question, even when we're in the midst of it, and then uh, open to this felt experience. So it can help us to step out of the story, maybe. You find yourself in a state of grumpiness or sadness or fear or so. And then when you investigate what is actually going on, you might realize that this mood state was triggered by some unpleasant Vedana that you weren't fully aware of. Actually, Charles spoke about this yesterday night. So often unacknowledged Vedana have quite a power over our mind. And in the moment that we see them clearly we can actually meet them differently, with more wisdom, with more compassion if needed. And the area that deserves our special attention are the indifferent feeling tones, the neutral ones, because as we have heard, it is there that the mind tends to space out. It's really interesting that if we attend to these neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedana, um, we will realize that they often don't stay the same. I don't know whether you have noticed that, but somehow through bringing the attention to these neutral experiences, we can discover something that is actually quite pleasant in a subtle way. So, as our attention gets more refined, more sensitive, we also learn to appreciate those middle zones a bit more. And we can discover that this seemingly neutral zone actually has a quality of calm, of evenness, of peacefulness to it. And it is a matter of getting used to those qualities, because maybe we are not so used to this, because our normal life is so busy and intense. Also, if we practice mindfulness of Vedana, we can bring in our interest to understanding its nature, its permanent and conditioned nature. It's so freeing to notice how unstable feeling tones really are, how fast they change depending on the conditions. In one moment we may be caught in a very difficult inner movie, unpleasant. The next moment the lunch bell rings, oh pleasant. Then we have to stand in line, oh unpleasant. So it's constantly changing. before ending I'd like to shortly return to the to the distinction between worldly and unworldly feeling tones that I mentioned in the beginning. What did the Buddha mean by that? Basically it is an ethical distinction between those vedana that feed the unwholesome in us and those vedana that feed the un- the wholesome. For example When we do something that is wholesome, we can notice a pleasant feeling tone. For instance, when we are generous, when we give a gift to someone, it feels pleasant, right? So this is enjoyable and it motivates us to repeat something that is wholesome. Or we can notice a pleasantness, a subtle joy when we are fully mindful and present, Or we can have a pleasant feeling tone when the mind um, is getting more collected and calm, you know, or the rapture that comes from concentration. So all those Vedana are completely unproblematic. And even more so, the Buddha explicitly recommended that we should cultivate wholesome, pleasant experiences. And there are also unpleasant sensations that can be wholesome, like the sadness about not being awakened yet. This is something that can motivate us to really practice. So this makes it clear that the practice is not about, you know, renouncing all pleasant experiences altogether. It doesn't ask us to now take up some extreme ascetic practices, rather It's about making a wiser choice. Where do we seek pleasantness? Knowing that we have a deeply ingrained preference for pleasant experiences, it is psychologically smart to cultivate wholesome activities that are at the same time pleasant. If we were to radically renounce all pleasant experiences from now on, probably our mind would react with a lot of resistance and discouragement. But if we simply focus more on those experiences that are both wholesome and pleasant, at the same time, this will help the mind to naturally lose interest in the unwholesome, pleasant experiences. Bhikkhu Analayo speaks of a gradual process of weaning off. First, we move from the unwholesome pleasant to the wholesome pleasant, and from there to the independent from all Vedana. Anyway, when we pay attention to Vedana, whether worldly or unworldly, bodily or mental, it dawns on us, More and more, how transient and insubstantial all Vedana are. Like winds, the Buddha said, sometimes cold, sometimes warm, sometimes strong, sometimes gentle. Ultimately, we understand that no Vedana is worth clinging to it, but that in just letting them be something much more fulfilling, much more precious starts to open up to us that goes far beyond the limited pleasure that comes from pleasant Vedana. And if we learn to open to and trust this deeper dimension, you might call it the ultimate reality, the unborn, the deepest peace, our reactivity to Vedana diminishes and we are more and more able to meet every experience from a place of balance of wisdom and compassion and therefore to respond to it in a more skillful way i would like to close with a few lines from pema chodron the essence of samsara is this tendency that we have to seek pleasure and avoid pain to seek security and avoid groundlessness to seek comfort and avoid discomfort. The opposite of samsara is when all the walls fall down, when the cocoon completely disappears and we are totally open to whatever may happen with no withdrawing, no centralizing into ourselves. That is what we aspire to, the warrior's journey. So let's just sit for a moment.